I want to tell you about a particularly frustrating 45 minutes of my life this past Monday afternoon. As some of you know, we've been going back and forth with a national, large national shipping company about a missing package and a particularly time-sensitive and expensive package. And so on Monday afternoon, I called to get an update on the status of this shipment. And you've you've done this before, I'm sure. You know what it's like. You call the 1-800 number. I called the 1-800 number, and then I was instantly put on hold. So there's this hold music that's playing in the background for quite some time. And then after that, finally, a representative picks up. And this representative picks up, and I talk to the representative about the problem that I was having. And they transferred me to another department. And in the transfer, the phone rang and rang, and rang, and rang, and it became apparent to me that there was no one on the other line that was going to pick up the phone. There was no answering machine that was going to allow me to leave some sort of message, and so I had no choice but to hang up the phone. Once again, call that 1-800 number, get put on hold again, wait for a while, and then finally speak to a second representative. This second representative apologized, transferred me to a different department where the phone rang and rang and rang and rang yet again. I'm getting the sense that there's no one on the other end that's going to pick up the phone, no answering machine that's going to bail me out and allow me to leave a message. So again, no choice but to hang up the phone for a third time, dial that 1-800 number for a third time, get placed on hold, hearing the same annoying music over and over again. And of course, during the whole time that this is taking place, uh, I'm, I'm downstairs and my kids are coming into the room to ask what I'm up to. And I love my children dearly, but during this time I had to keep ushering them out of the room saying, you know, daddy's doing something important. I need you all to stay out of the room for a little while. And the whole time that this is happening, my anger is rising. My frustration is on the rise and I'm having to fight back this temptation to just savor the idea of giving this next representative a piece of my mind when they answer the phone. And the whole time that all of this is happening, I'm trying to get a little bit of work done for this sermon. And so while I'm on hold with this this hold music on the background of my phone, I'm reading the scripture passage for this week. And this is what I was reading during the whole time that all of this was taking place. You can find it in 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. Again, you can imagine I'm sitting there, my phone's on the table with the background music playing, and I hear, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is is against those who do evil. That's what I was listening to 
as I was on hold, and then finally an employee picks up this third representative, and I'm presented with a choice. What am I going to say to this person, this human being, in light of the scripture passage that I had been reading? Many of you have probably been in situations like this fairly recently, frustrating situations, long situations where you're put on hold or you have a non-responsive situation, whether at work or on the phone with someone or with a family member. These situations are so hard to deal with, and you know the emotions that you feel in the middle of them. You feel a sense of anger because you feel like you're being taken advantage of. And this feeling taken advantage of gives you a sense of injustice that can kind of lead to a sense of panic, this rising blood pressure as you think about exactly why it is that you are the victim in this situation. In addition to all of these emotions, you probably feel just a sense of sadness, even a sense of defeat. It feels like such an incredible waste of time for you to go round and round. And in all of these situations where it seems like such a waste of time, we're confronted with three basic temptations. The temptation to forget how to treat those closest to us. The temptation to forget how to treat those who make our lives hard. And the temptation to forget that our relationship with God is what matters most. Our text this morning in 1 Peter chapter 3 tells us how to live the good life as exiles. Today, in the text, we're going to confront these three temptations, and we're going to hear Peter's response to us. Here's Peter's response. Remember your community. Remember your calling. And remember your God. As we do this, we reorient our desires and our expectations And this enables us to have a Christ-like character and an intimacy with God in the face of these daily challenges. This is, according to the text, the the true good life in the midst of our exile. So before we pray and seek God's blessing for his word preached, let's reaffirm our faith in the word of God, saying as we do every week, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Almighty God and Father, we thank you this morning that we can come into your presence, that we can hear your word preached, and that your word in particular deals with some pretty pointed things in our lives. In this delightfully short, small text, you do some incredible work in our hearts. So give to us, God, what we need this morning. Minister to us through these words of life, this delightful, this delightful text. Bring us to life through it. Give us joy. In Christ's name, amen. How do we live the good life as exiles? Peter is going to tell us that in this text. And in this section in Peter's letter, so far he's been addressing different social groups as we've marched through this main section in Peter's letter. But now he shifts from speaking to specific groups of people. He shifts, as we hear in verse 8, to all. He's now addressing all of the Christians. And when he addresses everyone, here's the first thing that he says. He says, remember your community. Now, why would he say, remember your community is the first thing out of his mouth? Well, Peter knows something. 
He knows something that we all probably don't really want to admit. He knows that when we're under pressure, the temptation for us is to forget how to treat those people who are actually closest to us. We can be honest about this with each other. We're, we're friends, right? Let's be honest. If you've had a tough day at work or a hard day at school, you're tempted to lash out. But you're not going to lash out at the people in these situations, your employees, your employer, or the people at school. No, you're probably going to bottle it up. And then when you get home, that's when the temptation really hits. The temptation to lash out at your spouse or your kids or your friends, your parents, your siblings. Now, maybe you're not the kind of person to lash out. Maybe you are more the person who withdraws, and so you become avoidant in these situations. But either way, whether we lash out, whether we withdraw, we, in any situation like this, experience the same temptation. We forget how to treat those who are closest to us. And as Christians in exile, we can do the same thing to each other. The pressure of exile makes us forget how to treat each other. And so Peter addresses that temptation now. He says, remember your community. And specifically, remember that your Christian community is your new family, so act accordingly. The Christian church is the new family. Now, this might present a challenge to some of us. Some of you may have grown up in dysfunctional families, and so you bristle at this language of families. You don't want the church to be compared to a family because you know what families can be like. Similarly, some of you may have gone to dysfunctional churches in the past, and so the idea of trusting a church like you want to trust a family, that, that makes you afraid of being taken advantage of. And these are real situations and valid emotions. I want to say that. These are valid things to feel. And so if you want to, at any point in time, process that part of your story, I would love to hear and be with you as you process that. So again, these are real, valid emotions. And at the same time, in spite of them being valid emotions, we can't escape the fact that Peter uses the language of family to describe the church. And in verse 8, he gives us five family virtues for the Christian church. Here's the first one. He says, all of you have unity of mind. A unity of mind is what we're called to at the first. This unity of mind, it it means having the, the same basic convictions about the faith. Peter's not telling us to have robot like agreement on all things, he's telling us to have a genuine unity on the things of the faith. As Henry Nouwen writes, we are a community not because we like each other or have a common task or project, but because we are called together by God. So because of our common call, Peter says, have a common mind, have a unified mind. And this is especially important in exile, when the Christian community could be easily fractured if we don't stick together. Now, seeking unity in exile, it's kind of like walking on a balance beam. You can fall off in one of two directions pretty easily. One direction you can fall off is seeking unity with people that you have zero doctrinal agreement with and have partnerships with those organizations or people. That's one way we can fall off the unity beam. But the other way that we can fall off the unity beam is having such narrowly doctrinal views that there can be real, really 
no unity with anyone else outside of this incredibly narrow tribe. And I think this is the situation that Peter really is addressing here. It's more of an art than a science, but Peter brings up a basic truth that isolation breeds unfaithfulness. And if you whittle down the number of believers that you can be in fellowship with because you're of like mind with until you're the last one standing, then your faith is in real danger. God has made us one family in the faith. And so he says, agree, be agreeable with one another, have unity of mind. And unity of mind then leads to the second family virtue, which is sympathy. Unfortunately, sympathy in our culture, it feels a little bit hollow, sort of like a Hallmark card. It can carry some tones of condescension, like, poor you, we are happy to help out with you because clearly you can't help yourself. But that's not what sympathy means here. Here, sympathy refers to how family members are impacted when something happens to another member of the family. What do you feel when something bad happens to a member of your family? Well, you feel it with them. That's what sympathy means, to feel with someone. Similarly, if something good happens to someone in your family, how do you feel? You feel it with them. You feel good. And so in the church, what Peter's saying, have unity so that it leads to sympathy. Be in community with each other so that you feel with each other. Another way of putting it is have brotherly love. This is the third attribute that Peter brings up. Have brotherly love for each other, or as the King James Version puts it, love as brethren. This continues the theme of the church as family. Because it's not just any particular kind of love that we are to practice. No, Peter calls us to practice family love. And family love is characterized by commitment. These Christians faced real rejection from their families of origin, and so they needed to know that the Christian family had their back. Peter says, love as brethren, meaning be committed to each other with the fierceness of family loyalty. And this is an important word for the church in a culture where church membership is a value that's on decline. Many people approach church attendance through the grid of emotional connection, asking questions like, does this church meet my felt needs? And when we approach church membership like that, then what happens when the emotions wear off or you feel let down? Well, you tend to move to a different community. You tend to leave churches, and so this breeds a culture of church hopping. But God wants us to have a different kind of commitment. He wants us to have family love for each other. Now, of course, love is not without emotion. Peter then goes on to say, have a tender heart. And that word tender heart, it simply means be affectionate and compassionate with each other. This is what it means to have a tender heart. It's the feeling you get when you think about some of your best friends. Or if you look back at photos of your family and you feel a sense of fondness, that means you have a tender heart. And Peter says, have a tender heart with the people in your church family. Being tender-hearted requires vulnerability because you're letting people into your heart. And this can be scary, especially if you've had people break your trust in the past. 
A few years ago, I had knee surgery to repair something that was torn in my knee. And as the first part of physical therapy, they had to stretch my knee so that it didn't become scarred and stiffened because of the surgery. This was painful, but they went slowly at first. They were gentle. And as the weeks went on, weeks of constant stretching gently, I was able to stretch more and more until I regained all of my movement and the ability to have a flexible knee. So I think building trust is like this after you have experienced some emotional wounds. Go slowly at first, but keep letting people into your heart. Because just like my knee, if you don't let people into your heart, if you keep pushing people away, then your heart is eventually going to retain those scars. Your heart is going to become calloused. But Peter doesn't say have calloused hearts for each other. Peter says be tender-hearted with each other. And then he ends the list of family virtues with the fifth family virtue, have a humble mind. And this nicely rounds out a list that began with have unity of mind. He comes now back to a humble mind. Humility really holds this list together. It grounds all of these other family virtues. Unity of mind, of course, requires humility. And churches that emphasize proper doctrine also need to emphasize proper humility so that they don't get prideful and puffed up. Sympathy requires humility so that you can see the world from someone else's point of view, so that you can feel with them when situations happen to them. Likewise, family loyalty, brotherly love requires humility to stay in relationship when the relationship gets hard or people do things that you disagree with. And also having a tender heart requires humility so that you don't look down on other people when they are suffering. Humility grounds this list. Richard Baxter writes that humility is not a mere ornament of a Christian, but an essential part of the new creature. It's a contradiction in terms to be a Christian and not be humble. This final word on humility points us to the one who embodies the fullness of these family virtues, Jesus himself. Because how did Christ treat those closest to him? He says, I call you friends. I am among you as one who serves. How did he treat the disciples when they fell asleep on him? Or when they didn't get it? Or when they failed him time after time? Well, he was gentle. He was kind. He was patient. So Peter, in verse 8 of chapter 3, is inviting us to become more Christ-like as a community. That's easier said than done, right? Because there's a heart issue at play here. Why is it that we forget how to treat those closest to us? Because deep down, I think it's because we believe that we're more important than they are. That those who are closest to us are here to serve us, to make us happy, to make life easy. That's the good life, right? Underneath the temptation to mistreat the people closest to us is this question. Just who do you think that I am? It's a question of selfishness. And Peter is offering us a change of heart to view those closest to us as important people that we must serve. Peter tells us that Christian community is a family that looks like Jesus. 
And as we treat other people this way, it helps everyone grow in the faith. It helps us to understand what Jesus is like as we see his attributes in action. And it also helps the world understand what Jesus is like. Christine Pohl, in her excellent book, Living into Community, says this, The best testimony to the truth of the gospel is the quality of our life together. The character of our shared life as congregations, communities, and families has the power to draw people to the kingdom or push them away. How we live together is the most persuasive sermon we'll ever get to preach. Which leads us to Peter's second exhortation, to remember your calling. Peter knows that there's another temptation when we're under pressure, when we are exiles in society, and that is to forget how to treat those who make our lives hard. Like me, on Monday, when I was spending my time getting put on hold time after time after time, I was so tempted to forget my calling toward the people who were making my life difficult. How was I to treat these people on the phone? And you know what this feeling is like. If you have a boss who's a workaholic and makes you be a workaholic too, or if you're in the car and the car in front of you has someone on the phone and when the light turns green, they're not paying attention and they don't go. You have this sense of impatience. You want to lay on the horn. You're forgetting how to treat those who are making your life hard. Or if you have a family member who's constantly poking at you because of the faith. The temptation's the same in all of these scenarios. It's forgetting how to treat the people who make our lives hard. Now, when Peter's writing to these first century Christians, I think what he has in mind is explicitly their lives being made hard because of their faith. And so the situations that Peter has in mind are situations of verbal abuse or belittling other people in society making fun of these people because of their faith. So when we apply this text to us, I think it involves both outright persecution, like the scenarios that Peter's talking about, and I think it's also appropriate for us to apply it to those who inconvenience us. And so Peter speaks into these situations and says, remember your calling. Remember your calling. We hear about our calling in verse 9. Let's turn our attention there. Peter says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called. Brothers and sisters, we have a calling to bless. This calling to bless, it's, it's not new in the Christian tradition at this point in time. It's actually a very, very old calling. It stretches all the way back to Genesis 12 when God tells Abraham, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. To bless someone is to ask God to be favorable to someone else. It's to stand before God. And ask him to be kind to that other person. The essence of blessing is to help someone else in their relationship with God. To help further their salvation. Now, it's easy to bless someone when you like them. Or when you're in a position of power over them. 
I think it's much harder to bless someone, to call down God's favor upon them, when you would much rather call down God's wrath upon them because they're unkind or because they target you, because you're a Christian, or because they make your life miserable. Let's say that you've been invited to a surprise birthday party for one of your best friends. And the group planning the party asks you to bring the cake. And so you are happy in this situation to bring a cake that says something like, we hope you have a great year. And when you think about your friend being in the spotlight, the object of celebration, you think about the the smile of delight and shock and surprise on your friend's face at this honor of having a surprise party, it it makes you happy, doesn't it? But now let's say that you've been invited to a surprise birthday party for the school bully or the office jerk, and the people planning the party have asked you to bring the cake. Can you bring a cake that says, we hope you have a good year, when you would much rather bring a cake that says, we hope you have a rotten year? And when you think about this person being the object of great affection from other people in the spotlight, being celebrated, when you think about this person having a smile on their face because of the joy and surprise of having a surprise party thrown for them, this thought makes you inwardly cringe. Yet this is what we're called to. We're called to bless those who revile us. This doesn't mean that we can't long for justice, but it does mean that in situations of average, everyday persecution and trouble, we are to bless. John Calvin interprets this blessing specifically as prayer. We're to pray for those who revile us, pray for those who make our lives difficult. Specifically, we are to pray that God would forgive them, that God would bless them and be favorable to them. Does this sound like anyone you know? Kids at home, what's the answer to that? You can shout it out. Who is this that does this act of blessing? Well, of course, it's Jesus. Just as Jesus is the example of how to treat those closest to us, Jesus is the example of how to treat those who make our lives hard. And how did Jesus respond to persecution and trial? Well, Peter has told us already. We've studied already in a previous sermon what Peter says in chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth when he was reviled. He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to one who judges justly. Peter says this is our example of how we're to act, how we're to bless. How did Jesus act? Well, he didn't lash out. Instead, he prayed. He sought their forgiveness even while they sought his death. And this shows us Jesus' desires, his selfless desires, his desires to see others' salvation, including our salvation. Let's remember that we, too, were his enemies. And so in gratitude for our salvation, we are to be like Jesus and bless other people, praying for their salvation. But this is, of course, easier said than done. Because there's a heart issue here, too. There is some underlying sin that we need to expose. Because why is it that we don't want to bless instead of curse? 
Why don't we want to pray for the people that are making our lives difficult? Instead, why do we savor the thought of them getting their just desserts? It's the same reason. It's our selfish desires. We believe that we're entitled to have an easy life, the good life. We would rather have a comfortable life without any conflict than have a life that is filled with conflict that could potentially lead to other people's salvation because we're praying for them. And so underneath the temptation to lash out against those who are making our lives difficult, it's the same question. Just who do you think that I am? Again, it's a question of selfishness. But this selfish attitude is opposed to Christ-like character and Christ-like mission in the world. Karen Jobes illustrates this powerfully in her commentary on this passage, and I want to read to you what she says. She, she writes, When I asked students in class one day to come up with specific, practical examples of how someone might bless an adversary, the story was shared of a Christian soldier living in a barracks with his unit. Each evening, he would re- when he would read his Bible and pray before retiring, he was reviled and insulted by the soldier across the aisle. One night, a pair of muddy combat boots came flying at the Christian. The next morning, the hostile soldier found his boots at the foot of his bed, cleaned and polished and ready for inspection. Several soldiers in this company eventually became Christians as a result of the inner strength of one who could return blessing for insult. It's a a beautiful story. It's a powerful story, but we can see why it would take inner strength, great inner strength, because it is hard to bless those who are hurting us. It takes humility to bless those who are hurting us. It requires that we let go of our selfish desires. John Piper says that one cannot truly bless without, while inwardly desiring someone else's hurt. So we're being called to give up that hurt. Quit nurturing that hurt and instead begin to pursue the things that God finds most valuable. So how? How are we to do that? How do we become Christ-like enough to remember our community and remember our calling when the pressure's on? Peter tells us, he says, remember your God. Remember your God. Here, Peter drills down to the heart of the matter from the end of verse 9 through verse 12 by naming the greatest temptation in our lives. The temptation that fuels all of our selfishness, that wars against our intimacy with the Lord. The temptation that stretches back to the Garden of Eden. The most basic temptation that we face. Here's that temptation. The temptation to forget that our relationship with God is what matters most. We constantly forget that our relationship with God is what matters most. Think about it. Why are we tempted to lash out at those closest to us when life is hard? Why is it so hard to let go of resentment so that we can actually pray for the people who make our lives difficult? Well, it's the same underlying problem, the sin of selfishness and self-centeredness. 
when we give into this sin, we begin to think that we matter the most, that our comfort, our happiness, our satisfaction are the center of the good life. And that's what our culture offers us as well. The definition of the good life is the one where you are in the middle. But Peter invites us to have a change of heart, to see that the good life revolves around God and your relationship to him when he is at the center of your desires. Peter says, remember your God. Let's listen to the end of verse 9 together. On the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Well, we all want a blessing, right? And here's the blessing that Peter has in mind. It's in verse 12. The blessing that believers get when we bless other people, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. Now that doesn't sound like much of a blessing if you think your happiness and your version of the good life is the thing that counts. Too often, I think we think of God's blessing like one of those morning TV talk shows. And you've seen these before, these talk shows where each person in the audience gets something cool just by being there. Again, you've seen this, the, the, the host, maybe it's Oprah, will say, okay, everyone now uh, look under your seat, and under your seat there's going to be this really great gift. It's going to be a new MP3 player, or on the rare occasion maybe the keys to a new car, stuff like that. And if that's our version of the good life, if God is supposed to make me happy on my terms, then you're right. We shouldn't have to put up with daily irritations. We shouldn't have to serve those who make our life difficult. And it's not necessarily a great blessing to have God hear our prayers. Unless, of course, God is simply our servant and we can snap our fingers and pray, just make these irritations go away. And maybe while you're at it, get me some lemonade, God. But if you know your need for salvation, if you know your deep need, then there's actually no greater blessing than having God hear your prayers. If you know your wretched estate, there is no greater blessing than having the eyes of the Lord on you, to have him attend to you. Peter is quoting here from Psalm 34, which is a psalm of exile and salvation. The background to the psalm is that David's on the run from Saul, and he's in a neighboring territory, and he finds out that he may be a wanted man there. There's no safe place for David in this moment, but instead of going to war, what he does is praise. He prays, and God delivers him out of all of his troubles. Peter, uh, David can write what Peter is quoting here. And directly after the verses in Psalm 34 that, that Peter quotes, David writes, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and the Lord saves the crushed in spirit. David was desperate. He knew his need. And this is what separates the humble from the selfish. The selfish and self-centered do not see their great need for salvation. But David knew his need for salvation. And he reached out to God. And he was greatly blessed when God saved him. So remember your God. 
He is the God of your salvation. You were dead in your sins before he saved you. And when you live according to his ways, when you, like Peter tells us, keep your tongue from evil, keep your lips from speaking deceit, turning away from evil, doing good, seeking peace, pursuing it, when you do these things, the reward is intimacy with God. His face is towards you. He hears your cry. He delivers you. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. And this is the good life. This is the true good life. Peter writes at the beginning of verse 10, whoever desires to love life and see good days. We all want that, right? We all want the good life. And so Peter says, if you want the good life, remember God. Keep him at the center of your desires. And this will transform your relationship with God because no longer is God some sort of cosmic genie granting your every wish, but he's your heavenly father. And you don't find yourself, when he's your heavenly father, you don't find yourself grumbling that if God really knew what I was going through or if he was really as powerful as he says he is, then he would fix this now. No, when God is your heavenly father you find yourself grateful because you realize that your heavenly father loves you, that he sent his son to die for you. And this is humbling because you know yourself, you know your own sinful ways, and maybe you wonder if you're really worth all of that trouble. And God, your heavenly father, says, absolutely, absolutely, you are worth the trouble of saving you because I love you. Grumbling, grumbling is not fun. Feeling entitled, it's not enjoyable, but gratitude is. Being humble before our Heavenly Father and being lifted up by Him, that is the good life. So as we grow less self-centered in our relationship with God, we become less self-centered in our relationships with others. Another way of saying this is that the more we draw near to Christ, the more Christ makes us look more like himself. That's the answer to how we are to do this. It transforms our relationships with others and it transforms our perspective on suffering. Earlier I said that it was easy to bless other people when you're in a position of power. But if true blessing involves appealing to God, then Christians are always in the position of power. Christians are always in a privileged position. We're at the crossroads between God and the rest of the world. Sure, it doesn't always feel like we're in a position of power, but that's only if we look at our situation through the eyes of selfishness, judging our standing in the world to understand where we're at. But if God is at the center of the good life, and if we are in a relationship with God, then we are always in the position of power to bless other people. Remember what Peter says, his ears are open to our prayer. So if you want to live the good life as exiles, don't look for it in a life of ease, a life of selfishness. The text warns us that the face of God is away from those who pursue their own self-interest at the expense of other people. Instead, seek the good life in your relationship with God. And don't be surprised that we often find ourselves where in, in many situations, where frustrations force us to make the decision to seek God or to seek our own selfish desires. 
In many ways, seeking the good life involves fighting through thousands of daily frustrations and some very large trials in life, but finding satisfaction in God at the end of it. For me, this was my conversation on the phone on Monday. I was tempted. I was tempted to lash out at those who were closest to me and snap at my kids as they came into the room. I was tempted to lash out at the person on the other end of the phone because they were making my life difficult and I was tempted, oh boy, was I tempted to forget that my relationship with God was the thing that mattered most. Instead, I was tempted to think that my indulging my own sense of self-righteous anger was the most important thing that I could do. But this was an opportunity for me to experience the good life. And because God used this particular text to expose my sin, I thankfully didn't give in to these temptations, although I can tell you countless stories of times that I have. But this time, instead of anger, I showed politeness. And in the end, I was blessed. Now, I wasn't blessed by having my situation resolved. The situation wasn't resolved. In fact, it's still not resolved. But I left contented. I left with a blessing from God because I chose the good life. And the good life has rewards. A deeper relationship with God. And that is what we were made to enjoy. So this week, seek the good life as exiles. If someone in your family or the church frustrates you, respond as Christ tells you, with patience, with grace, as one family member to another. If someone outside of the faith is making life incredibly hard for you, pause and pray for them. And if you find your teeth grinding at these injustices... Spend some time reading 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 12. Reflect on Psalm 34 that we used at the beginning of the service, and that's quoted here. Reflect on your own salvation, remembering that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Friends, when the pressure is on and you're still wanting the good life, remember your community, remember your calling, and remember your God. Because with God at the center, you are truly living the good life. Let's pray. Almighty God and Father, thanks for this word that brings us hope, that brings us the promise of this good life. We recognize that many times we we don't want this good life that's on offer. We would like our version instead, but we know and we trust that our version of the good life in the end leaves us empty. So through your spirit, Lord, give us the wisdom, the grace to trust in your promises, to hold fast to you, and to remember the things that you call us to. Bless us, we pray this week, in the name of Christ. Amen.